Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 28, 2014, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, time for your calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. With all the travel I've done lately, I have missed some of these shows, and I'm also batting solo today. I have no expert counsel stuff today. I did send off some calls for council members today, but that'll probably not even be next week. It'll be the week after, because we have the big, giant, huge earthworks, well, not really earthworks, food forest planting workshop going on next week. So don't bet on show a show on Friday. Um, it's just probably not going to happen. I'll see if I can do a Q&A or something with the audience and put that out as a gorilla podcast. That worked out really good out at Voices. Anyway, before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. Hey, silver should be part of your preps. Silver should be part of your investing. Maybe a little bit of gold in there, too. You know me, guys. I am not the put-all-your-money-in-silver-and-gold guy. I am the put 5 to 10% of your net wealth into silver and gold as an insurance policy against inflation. And uh, one of the best places I know to get your metal is from JM Bullion. They were a company I went out and found. Uh, I was looking for companies, you know, and they could do a good deal for you guys, like Monex or Atmex, and I couldn't talk to anybody over there that really was worth talking to, honestly. Not someone at a top level that I could get an answer from if one of you guys had a problem. I found JM Bullion. I could talk to the president directly. No problems. Get problems taken care of, no problem. And guess what? Pricing better than Monix and Atmex. That was it. Deal done. They are now an official Survival Podcast sponsor. Have been so for over a year. Has Have made many great relationships with many members of this audience. Check them out today for all your silver and gold needs. Jambullion.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp, Jr., trainer extraordinaire at Fortress Defense Consultants. you got to get up to Frank, take some training with him. Remember, there's a triangle of gun operator efficiency, and that efficiency is about three things. The weapon itself, it's got to be a good quality weapon. But you can just buy that, and you have it. Ammo, you got to have ammo, or you have an overpriced club, but you can just buy that. Training, you can buy it, but you better buy it right, You've got and you've got to put the work into it. You are the linchpin between the weapon, the ammo, and whatever needs to be done. Frank Sharp and his staff can make you a solid linchpin so that if it really comes down to it and you ever need to protect your life or the life of others, you can fall back to your highest level of training and do what needs to be done. I cannot tell you of any place you can go that you'll get better training than you will with Frank and his cadre at Fortress Defense. Next up today, our discount vendor of the day. This is a, you know, a company that is a discounter in the MSB but not an official sponsor. How about TSP Gear? I mean, TSP Gear Shop, run by Kelly John Doe, who also does survival gear bags. Um, we have great stuff, man. We've got great T-shirts. We've got coffee mugs, uh, French press coffee mugs that let you make your own coffee. Uh, we've got some great canisters, some great tools, some great patches. There's a whole section for friends of TSP, uh, stuff that they have. TSPgear.com is a great way to spread the message of the Survival Podcast. Get great gear at a great price. Uh, I personally think our shirts that are uh, done on kind of a coffee design with the big ant on the back, 
black and white. I think that's one of the coolest looking shirts uh, that I personally own. I wear that. I have several of them. I wear them all the time. Uh, check out tspgear.com if you never have, and if you are an MSP member, you get 10% off. Nice segue there, um, because you uh, get a discount from Jam Bullion as well, and you know why not join the MSB? Hey, man, if you want to take a PDC, Jeff Lawton's launching his PDC uh, Saturday, midnight Pacific Standard Time. Uh, it is $997, and I got a $100 discount for any MSB member that wants to take that course. Hundred bucks pays for your membership for two years, right there. Um, and I've got a lot of other great discounts for you. I've got over $150 worth of free eBooks. I keep building value. I'm in negotiations right now with yet another vendor to get you guys another discount on a really unique product. I will always keep building the value of the MSB for you. Uh, again, the members support brigade. If you uh, if you want to learn more about it, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members and. Uh, You can learn more that way, and you can sign up. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, if you email me before, not after, but before you join, put service discount on the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll send you a discount code to save you even more money on an already great product. Sorry I got distracted there. My alarm went off. It tells me to turn the goose eggs. So I'm actually going to pause right now. And turn goose eggs. I've got some old goose eggs in the old hoverbaiter incubator as we uh, try to set up to run another run through the uh, new high-tech one. And uh, I don't have a turner for it yet, so I have to manually turn these things about six times a day. So I just did that. So this is real-life podcasting, folks. Anyway, because uh, we do live the life we talk about here, that's for sure. With the housekeeping wrapped up, let's get into the year that is the episode. The year, 1323. Our segment today by Alex Shrugged at TSP Wiki is called The Economics of Medieval Farming. Uh, if you remember, we've been dealing with a famine due to uh, a climate change event where a volcano blew its top, and uh, we have had really bad yields and really bad years for agriculture for several years. Um, this is where we're at now. The worst of the famine is over. Wheat prices remain high. Wages are higher, but have not kept up with prices. Huh. The price of food is high and wages have gone up but not kept pace with prices. Gee, 1323 sounds an awful lot like 2014. Anyway, the economies of Europe and England remain unstable. <laughs> It sounds like yesterday's news, man. Uh, wars continue unevaded, and that means crippling taxes to fund the wars, since the aristocracy have no other way to fund wars. <laughs> Okay, we'll get to the part now that doesn't sound like yesterday. The famine hit the poor the hardest, which means a labor shortage, because maybe the famine's hit the poor the hardest now, but we don't have a labor shortage. We have a, a work shortage. Anyway, handing down one's estate to a son has been disrupted since about a third of those sons are now dead, passing those assets on to distant cousins. Crop yields are poor even at their best because the farmers do not use modern farming methods. Winters are longer and the temperatures are cooler, thus shortening the growing season. Some scholars think the Great Famine may have killed more people than the Black Death will in a few years. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together. I was curious about the average yields for a medieval farm, and I was shocked at what I found. They are one-third the yield of a modern farm. The average medieval farm is an open field of 18 acres divided into three lots in rotation. Two acres of meadows in the common, six acres are fallow, six acres are in wheat, yielding 66 bushels. Uh, let me just tell you the two acres in common mean. The, the farms would put 
out certain land to be managed as pasture and that joining farms would actually have all of these blocks together and that would mean that each farmer could graze in the common so even though I might own some land you might own some land we might both have our grazing animals on this on, on joining land okay medieval farms uh Let me, let me get back. Six acres in wheat yielding 66 bushels. For comparison, a modern yield is 180 to 300 bushels of wheat on six acres, unirrigated. Um, medieval farms have three acres in oats yielding 38.5 bushels and three acres of barley yielding 49.5 bushels for a total yield of 154 bushels. The farm would also have around three cattle, 10 sheep and one pig, along with chickens and geese. After tithing, selling and setting aside seed for the next planting, 40 bushels of grains are left for family consumption, 154 pounds of meat, 60 pounds of cheese, uh, vegetables from the garden, and wool to spin and sell. Average caloric intake per person, 1,700 calories a day, 1,338 calories of it are in grain. Uh, see the journal article below for eye-bleeding detail about the average medieval farm budget. Yeah, um, when you look at that, you start to realize how much we have today and how little we value it and the massive danger that we're in. So you look at this and say, Oh, look, these guys couldn't do anything right. This way they were starving to death. Um, these farmers were feeding themselves and their nations and they were feeding a lot less people per farm than we are now, a lot less people per acre than we are now, which means a failure today will have more dire, not less dire, more dire consequences. Um, I can't get into the nitpicking on the numbers and why yields are higher today and versus the past and all today because that would just be a whole show. Maybe we should do a show one day talking about old farming versus new farming and where's the overlap and what can we do that was they did right in the past and what do we do right now and uh, that we could still keep doing and not destroy you know land and export topsoil and, and what have you. But uh, that's for another day. Now it's time to get into uh, your calls. So let's go ahead and take that first call. Hey, Jack. I've got a question. I'm in Maine. What are your thoughts on towns issuing permits to work from home? Here's the backstory. I'm a machinist. I've got an opportunity to work out of my garage. I have the equipment already. Kind of doing it as the hobby on the, the backside. I've got a full-time job. But it came to my attention that the town requires permits to run small businesses out of your home. I am zoned appropriately. Do I give the state and the town more credibility than they deserve by getting the permit before I go full-time, or do I just say screw them and go under the radar? Hope to hear the question on the show. Thanks a lot for your show, Jack. Well, this makes me think of is the many conversations that I have with Josiah about anarchism versus minarchism uh, versus today. And... How many anarchists uh, tend to, to live in the world that they envision versus the world that is. So the the, the part of me that that is equally susceptible to that wants to say, screw them. You don't need a permit to do shit on your own property, right? That's that's how I feel. But how I feel and how I act are often different when it comes to many things, specifically business. When you go into business, it's time to take off. The ego cap and the idealistic cap, put them aside, and that doesn't mean that they're not useful and occasionally put back on, but the first cap we have to wear is the business cap that thinks about things like 
For instance, fiduciary responsibilities. So a fiduciary responsibility means that if you're running a company, you have a responsibility to do what's in the best interest of the company. Now, this is often, I should say also, often used uh, by large corporations to justify very bad, unethical procedures. They'll say, well, we couldn't reveal that we were poisoning people because we had a fiduciary responsibility to protect the company and shareholders. No, what's best for a company long term, what's best for a company long term is always to do right by the company, the customer, the supplier, etc. So you can have fiduciary responsibility and be ethical. Fiduciary responsibility is something that a lot of small businesses that run a company of one uh, kind of ignore. They don't really think about it enough. They think about, well, if I just do what I need to do, then the money will take care of itself. There's some truth in there, but there's a point at which you have to run your small company, even though it's just you, as though you had a staff of 100. Because in the end, we all look out for ourselves, right? And that means if you're running a business and you come to depend on the income, and your family depends on the income to eat, um, to keep the lights on, to stay warm, to provide for them, then you don't want to take an action that puts the company at risk. Because not only does it put the company at risk and the company's business at risk, it puts you yourself at risk and basically losing your job when you have to turn around and fire yourself because the company's out of business. This is how you have to think. So... There are situations where you might do things under the radar in violation of codes or ordinances and things like that. If you're in a position where, look, I want to do this, I want to do this, and there's no way to do it above board, so I'm going to take the risk. I can see where that could happen in certain situations. But I can tell you that I know of places where it's already come home to roost. Um, for instance, this is very close and personal to me right now. My niece... Um, who lives in Colorado, uh, basically started babysitting for quite a few families and basically running a small home daycare service out of uh, her house. All of the parents are happy. All of the kids are happy. Everybody's happy. She's making a fair profit. Uh, nobody's got any problems with anybody as far as the interrelationships go. Uh, they're not causing any disturbances in the neighborhood. But some prick who needs their teeth kicked out of their mouth uh, called the state and arced them out. And apparently where they live in Colorado, you got to have a freaking license to do this. Now, a license isn't that expensive, and it's not that hard to get, apparently, but it takes six to eight months to get that license. So she's now lost an income source she's come to depend on because somebody's an ass and because the state has the ability to step on small people. It'll take another six to eight months for her to acquire her licensing. Uh, so that she could do this above board, and they would probably come in and say, oh, we don't think you can have more than X amount of kids here, or some bullshit that you know should be between a caregiver and their kids. And I don't know when the hell you started needing a license to basically babysit, and who gets to decide what's a babysitting job and what is a freaking you know, daycare. And I don't know why the state has their nose in that freaking business, and whoever did this, I really would like to kick their teeth out of their mouth. That's how I feel. I mean, you got to have your head so far up your own ass and be so miserable in your own life to do something like this that you need a beating. You absolutely need a beating to get shocked into reality. But, you know, we live in a civilized society, and there's plenty of people whose teeth I'd like to kick in that I can't just go do. I've got to be civil, and I've got to deal with it. 
Now, why do I tell you all this and rant a little bit? One, because I'm pissed, right? And this is, you know, one of the places I get to, to vent a little bit to my people, to my audience. But it's because this same thing could happen to you. And what it sounds like, you've got the zoning. Basically, you go down and you pay Caesar's tribute. You do it above board. You get your permit. And then you move on with your life. And then you don't end up someday, somebody bitches, right? You think, and you called in and gave me some additional information. It sounds like you pretty much could be under the radar with this and not have any problems. But what if you have one customer one day, brings you some work, doesn't like what you do, and you do everything you can to make them happy. You've been completely reasonable. But basically what they want you to do to make them happy is give them a whole bunch of shit for free because they're an asshole. Trust me, if you're in business, sooner or later you're going to do business with somebody else and that person's going to be an asshole. So that asshole thinks to himself, you know what? When I was down there at his shop, I didn't see a permit on the wall and he writes you out. And, he writes you out. and then the Department of Making You Sad shows up and shuts your business down and now your business is defunct and now the income you've come to depend on is not there. So, from a business standpoint, regardless of the way things should be, when you run a business, one of the things you have to think about is a fiduciary responsibility. And in this situation, since the permit is achievable, attainable, there's no major roadblocks to it, there's nothing that says you can't have it, and it's probably not that expensive, it would probably make sense to put it in place. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Steve from Washington. I've got two questions for you. One, want to do some rain collection and possibly use drip irrigation to push that water out. And I was wondering if there's any guidance you have on filtration, not really to make it drinkable, but to keep the particles out and not plug up the uh, drip lines and stuff like that. Uh, the other question, I know it's about swales. I know it's simple. But is the swale width uh, relative to the rainfall? See where we're at, we get about 8 inches a year and the majority of that. No, so I'm thinking that maybe a skinnier ditch might be better for less rainfall to keep your water closer to where your trees are. But anyway, uh, let me know what you think. Bye. Okay, two totally different questions, kind of cheating, but you did a good job and got them out quick, so I'll answer them both. Uh, just kidding, guys. You can always ask two questions, especially if you do it like that. Is That is textbook how to ask a question. I know what the question is. Got to the point, asked it, and I can answer it. So let's start out with water. Um, you probably want to do, if you're going to use drip, definitely do first flush. There's a lot of different ways to do it. The easiest way that I've seen to do it uh, is the way Nick Bertner does it on his IBCs that he has on his house. It's so simple. You take a big piece of, like, four-inch PVC pipe. On the bottom of it, you have it just a little bit up off the ground, or you have a valve coming out the side of it. You can have a, a, a thing where you can unscrew it, um, or you have uh, a valve that you can open and drain it out when you need to drain it out and, get, and clean out all the muck out of it. All right? So that pipe sits vertical, and it goes all the way up to the top where the input side of your, um, your, your water tank is. And once you've done that, basically what's going to happen is all the water is going to go down into that pipe and it's going to fill up. And when it gets completely full, it's going to divert over to the side and start going in your collection tank. That's the easiest first flush method I've seen. And it, what you can do to keep stuff that goes in there from kind of like coming back up is you can put a ball float in there. Basically, the, the ball that goes on the, uh, the, the dipper in a toilet, that thing that screws on, you know, the float ball 
You get a pipe that that's just big enough to fit in there, and when that ball comes to the top, it stops it, and you have a cap on the top that's a little bit smaller diameter, keep that ball from it coming out and diverting the water into your tank. That's the easiest way I've seen to do it. Um, and if you're going to drip, it's probably a good idea. The other thing you'll want to do is any any time you put drip in, you want to put an inline filter so that anything that is in the water gets stopped by that filter. You can pull that filter out. You can clean it out, put it back in, and get your drip going again. And and honestly, um, unless you have a lot of debris on your roof, that's probably enough by itself. It, it really is. Because first flush isn't going to get tiny little particulate matter, matter out. It's going to get bigger stuff. It's never going to get through the filter anyway. So first flush is a good idea, but I don't think it's as important as some people make it out to be, uh, especially if we're not drinking this water. All right, so now moving on. Um, the next question is about swales where you have moderate rainfall. Very Actually, I'd say you're in a desert rainfall situation, eight inches. But you also said a magic word, ah, snow. Okay. So we have to look at your climate kind of like this. It's like a desert, except from what I know of your climate, your eight inches generally come pretty spread out. There's a lot of deserts where they get 8, 10 inches of rainfall a year. I believe 10 or less a year is the definition of a desert. It's either 10 or 12, whatever. But they get a third of it in a single event. All right, This is what we call designing for a flood. I don't think you generally get that. Now, it's very important in those situations to have swales that are so big that if you get 2 or 3 inches of rain, even only once a year, you harvest every speck of that water you can. So it actually gets more important to put a bigger swale in in a situation where you get less rain if you get major rain events once or twice a year, like many desert climates. Huge runoff, very little to prevent it. You want to catch, hold, and infiltrate as much as you can. I don't think you have that, so then we could justify a slightly smaller swale. But what you do have, snow. And if you're in Washington and you're in the rain shadow, you probably have pretty decent elevation and there's probably upgrade catchment. So unless you're sitting on the top of a mountain, there's probably somewhere above you that water comes from and it adds up. And when it's melting snow, it really adds up. So in many ways, in your type of climate, the snow melt is like that major rain event. A small amount of snow, because it's, it comes in so slowly, will generally fill up swales. So I wouldn't go too small on them. Of course, permaculture. So it depends. Are you growing 10 trees in your backyard with a hand dog swale? Or are you putting a major full-on food forest? Those are two different things. The additional thing, if you're irrigating at all, swales make the irrigation more efficient as well. You want over the years to actually recharge your ground. And I would say that if you're going to be going to the point of you know, full-on food forestry. I would go no smaller with your swales than six foot wide by one foot deep. That would be about the minimum if you're talking something being put in with an excavator, full-on food forest, seven-layer type thing. If you're doing backyard stuff, the truth is, with the minimal rainfall you get, if you have a swale that's too small, it's almost not worth having. If when you get a major water event, it massively overfloods your swale, all the opportunity for infiltration is lost. So you have to balance those things out. So it's more, swaling is less about 
total rainfall per year and more about what are your two or three largest rain events of the year on average. If they're an inch of rainfall three times a year and you can fill a nine-foot-wide, one-and-a-half-meter-deep swale with that major event, that one inch, there's enough catchment to do it. And you can run the numbers and calculate it and determine if it's there or not. And if it's there, it makes sense to put that big swale in even though it's infrequent rainfall because the climax events are such that a massive infiltration can occur. So to give you some numbers, for example, I get between 24 and 26,000 gallons to fill my three main swells out to the side. They're not that big. 545-odd feet, uh, six foot wide, a, a foot deep. Um, one inch of rainfall fills and overflows them. One inch. If it's in any you know, reasonably short period of time, let's say uh, 12 hours or less of duration to get an inch, they're full. Sills overflowing. Um, that's because I have a lot of hard roof catchment. I have a lot of upgrade catchment. I got. I, I designed the system to have a lot of catchment. If I only got that once or twice a year, it'd be more, not less important to catch as much as I can. If that makes sense, because over five to seven years is where you really begin to recharge the landscape. So you got to think in that five to seven year time frame, not that one rain event. But you do have to build your capacity based on your major rain events, not on your typical rain events or your annual precipitation. Uh, and again, I think you have a big opportunity in that snow melt. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jeff from Northwest Ohio. Hey, they say there is no place for politics and permaculture, but I do believe there is a place for permaculture, so libertarians and government and politics. But I believe it's at the local level. Small towns, counties, townships, etc. We know some most politicians are deceitful narcissistic jerks and honest folks don't have the stomach for this type of politics. Um, I do believe it's important that TSP type people get involved in leadership positions at local levels, whether it be a president or board member of the kids sports team, being on the board of a township or county or being involved in their small town government. It takes practice to develop skills to debate, to persuade people, to have people see another person's view or option. Jack, look at the skills you have developed through your time spent on the air time researching topics, questions to make your show and your agenda. Think about every time the society that has collapsed or is crumbling. What has taken place? What has filled the vacuum? What do we want as permaculturalists, libertarians, when this is happening? Do we want any say? Should we have any voice? Do we want to be run over by thugs, gangs, or the rich elite when things go south? Love the show with John Bush. But somehow we need to become more organized for our own benefit. The average Joe gets walked down around the world, and we really do a crappy job of looking out for ourselves. Hey, Jack, love your show. Keep up the good work. Um, your comment has a lot of validity, and I also think a lot of optimism that's wasted at the same time. Let's talk about this. You talked about being on the board of a kid's sports team. You know what? Let me let me tell you how that works. A kid's sports team doesn't need a board. It doesn't need anything. It doesn't need any policing. It doesn't. Need, we know how baseball is played. There's rules for baseball. You need an umpire. You need coaches. You need kids. And you need equipment, and that's it. And, and if, if there's any kind of money necessary, it needs to be looked over. Yeah, there could be a small board for that. But Jesus, I mean, if if we need government to run a baseball team, we got a freaking problem. All right, and, and that gets to me to my other point. 
I agree with you that if you're going to be politically active and, and you're going to try to make a difference, that working at small layers is better. That working in a county, a city, is pro and town council is probably the place to go. But I think this brings up an interesting thing. The belief is that big government is bad and small government is good. But I have seen more atrocities committed on small people by small government than big government. And what it makes me start to realize is not only can a government, if you're going to have a government, can a government be too big? You can also have a government that's too small. And it, we really need to think hard about the establishment of a government when we get down to the size of a group, town, organization that doesn't actually require one. And if you want proof, I can give it to you in three letters. H-O-A. I have seen more harm done to more good people who have done nothing wrong in daily lives by HOAs than the federal government or the state government of any state. The HOA is one of the most atrocious forms of government known to man. And I don't think people know that. I think that any time that you talk to somebody and they're talking about forming an HOA or moving into a place with an HOA, ask them if they think they need more government in their life. Do you, do you feel the need for more government in your life? I think that we should have to... HOAs are governments. They're governments. And they're completely not necessary. And please don't write me and tell me why you need one because some guy has a trailer if you don't or some stupid crap like that because I don't care if a guy has a trailer on his own property. If you don't want to live where people own trailers or park their cars in their driveway or have front yard gardens, don't move to a neighborhood where people do that. And maybe you have a problem mentally if that's really a problem for you. I, I don't know. But this, this, is how I, this is how I feel about it. The worst crimes by governments are committed at the highest level and the lowest level of government, the biggest and the smallest. It's generally the case in most places, not all, but in most places that I've seen, the government gives you the least amount of shit in your life is the county government. It seems to be about a size where, unless you're in a major market like Los Angeles County or something like that, where there's a huge county seat and lots of funding for county activities, the counties are usually where they kind of get out to the point of, we don't have time to screw with you about everything in your life. So we're only going to focus on the things that we, we have to do to maintain a decent, well-ordered, and run society where people can feel safe and decent. And it makes me wonder, would we be better off, not just in a minarchist state or uh, a stateless society, which is, I think, a better way to talk about anarchism, is a stateless society because a society has order, and anarchism conjures up disorder. But would we be better off if governments were restricted to county-sized governments? or at least county, state, and federal. We didn't have town ordinances and city ordinances and freaking HOAs and governing bodies running baseball teams, for God's sakes. Do we really need this much government in our life? Again, I'm not saying not to be active, but I'll, I'll tell you the honest truth. I don't have the patience or the time 
to convince somebody that I deserve my liberty. Which when you when you you insinuate maybe the way I get your call, and I'm not mad at you. I'm just this has been a tough week, guys. So I'm a little agitated. So don't take anything personal. But it seems to insinuate that maybe it would be a good idea for a person like me to get involved in my local government. And I'll tell you where I'm at with this. My threshold for what liberties I will permit the state or state, capital or lowercase, or any other governing body to interfere with are about at their limit. This is about it. And I'm not at the point anymore of trying to convince anybody at all that I deserve my freaking liberty. Period. I'm at the point of, I I have made an assertion that I have at my liberty. And if you want it, I'm not going to convince you that I should be able to keep it. You're going to have to come take it away from me. And I'm getting to a point where I'm starting to see other people feel this way. And the, the, the busybody blue hairs in these HOAs should wake up to this. And the governments of the state and the state should wake up to this. Because let me tell you what, what I'm starting to feel in the general population of this country, specifically everybody not sucking on the tit of government. Tolerance is at about its limit. I think it's time, instead of, let's go talk about it, let's convince people to, to explain to the people in power how it actually works. You don't let us. We let you. You did not create us, we created you. We do not owe you, you owe us. You do not have the power, we are the power. And I am not about to waste even one second of my time as a politician trying to tell another politician whether it's down at the level of an HOA or up at the level of federal government, why I or anyone else should retain the freedom that they were freaking born with. It's about time that we just started to assert our freedom and dare anybody, dare anybody to interfere with it. I'm not saying be stupid about this. I'm not saying go up and set up a chicken farm in the middle of an HOA. I'm saying find the place where your liberty that you require in your life exists. Establish yourself there and then dare someone to try to change it. Dare someone to try to change it. This was the deal when I got here. This is why I came here. I dare you to interfere with my liberty. The day even 5% of this country finds a pair, straps it back on, stops being a bunch of emasculated men and defeminized women. Because feminism is a very strong force. Not the bullshit feminism of the 60s. The true feminine power is very, very powerful. And what we have done is taken the femininity out of our women, the masculinity out of our men, And we've made ourselves a bunch of freaking eunuchs, male and female freaking eunuchs that can't stand up anymore. But the day even 5% of this country turns to our government and says, this is it. 
There's no more. There's no more bargaining. There's no more deals. There's no more giving shit up. We're done now. Right? We can talk about how long it takes to get rid of all the stuff you've done, but there is no more. We're done. This is it. We're finished. To hither thou shalt come and no further. It's game over. Five to ten percent of this population would empower the other sixty percent to get the coffee can off the shelf, pull their testicles out of it, and strap them back onto their body and start acting like men. And for women, start realizing that women are powerful as women. You want to control human beings. The first thing you do is prevent them from acting human. And then because they're confused and stressed and scared, they're easy to control. Frankly, for me, politics can kiss my ass. I'm not here to be political. I'm here to be a sovereign being. And anybody that wants to interfere with that, well, take your best shot. Because I'm not given another freaking inch. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Harlan from Indiana, also known as Lowat Living. Well, my 72-year-old mother passed away on the 10th of March, and she had a pear tree in her yard. And everyone, I'm the youngest out of 10 kids, and everyone seems to want to get a piece of that tree. And they're looking at me because... I'm known for that in the family. I mean, not specifically fruit trees, but being that sort of person that can figure that out. I looked up a few things online, and I know there's two ways to do it. There's You can either plant a seed for seedlings, or you can take a start off of the tree. Um, the question I have is, which, which would be better for me to do, the seedlings or starts? And if I take a, the starts here in Indiana, we're in zone five. Um, do I do that after the leaves come back on the tree, or or what would be the best way to do that? Um, I appreciate it, and thank you very much. Bye. All right, sounds like what we've got here is a a true heirloom uh, pear tree. When I say heirloom, I don't mean a variety. I mean it's an heirloom. It's a family heirloom. It's something that everybody in the family wants to have uh, growing in their future so they can say this was a part of mom's tree and hand it down. And that's very, very cool. The issue with seed, you don't know what you're going to get, and whatever it is, it won't be like the pear that was on the tree. It might be very good. It might not be so good. But it ain't going to be like the pear that was on the tree. You want a clone of some sort to make this happen. Um, now, there's a couple ways that we can go about this. One, we can make seedlings and just see what comes out of it. And there's really no reason not to do that as an additional thing. But if we really want this tree propagated and, and, and to have a tree that looks and produces the way that mom's tree does, we either need to do it with grafting or we need to do it with cuttings. And the safer bet would be grafting. You get a good quality rootstock. You cut some what's called cyan wood off of the, the pear tree. Uh, you know, going into the dormant season, you graft the cyan wood onto the rootstock. 
uh, while the tree is dormant, and then when it breaks bud in the year, it develops the roots of the rootstock, and all of a sudden you have a new tree if used you know, thing. And honestly, grafting is not that difficult to learn how to do. And there are many sources of good quality rootstock, and you could definitely get some good quality pear rootstock from somebody like Rain Tree Nursery, uh, along with some grafting tape and a grafting knife or a tool that cuts your grafts. And uh, there's probably a nursery somewhere near you that does grafting classes, and you could explain what you're trying to do, and I bet they could help you. There's probably a nursery supply store somewhere around you that sells these things, and there's probably a knowledgeable person there. Somewhere around you is someone that could teach you to graft. And it's probably a good idea to learn to do it that way. Cuttings. Cuttings may or may not work well for you. It, it's, it's a little tricky with fruit trees. Sometimes it, it's easy. Sometimes it's not so easy. The best way I know to do rootings of cuttings is using intermittent, intermittent mist. This is like a one-second mist, you know, uh, or a ten-second mist every couple minutes or something like that that just keeps, like you're misting a produce section with your cuttings taken when they're somewhere between soft and hard wood. So a new growth cutting taking in the, in the early summer, uh, pruned off and put into like a sandbox and kept in shade and misted intermittently until it roots and then maybe take into a place where it's not misted all the time. It's simply kept moist. You grow your roots out, and then that next spring, you pot it up and grow it into a full-size plant. Um, but I've also seen people take a bunch of cuttings from things like pears and apples and what have you um, and just stick them in the ground, and some of them grow. So, I mean, you could try that. I would definitely use a rooting hormone to give yourself a better opportunity for success. And if you just got yourself a couple five-gallon buckets, made sure they were well-drained, made a very well-draining soil so you can keep it damp, um, took a bunch of cuttings about late May, early June, when you can get a good several-inch cutting, okay, that's all new growth, and it's starting to harden up a little bit, take your cutting, strip off your leaves except for a few at the top, dip it in a rooting hormone, put it in that place keep it in a shady and keep it moist and mist it with a bottle four or five times a day you'll probably get success and since you if it's a big tree you can take a hundred freaking cuttings if 20 of them root you probably have more than you need but you would probably do better to graft now here's another way you can do your grafting you can buy cyan wood right now not cyan wood i'm sorry rootstock right now you could order pear rootstock Take the pear rootstock, go where you're going to plant the tree, dig a hole, plant the rootstock in the ground, let it grow. Because you're going to want to take your cyan wood, the piece that's going to graft onto the rootstock, is a fall cutting. All right, You want to take it as it's going dormant. Plant your rootstock at your house, your brother's house, your sister's house, your cousin's house, everybody that wants one of these trees. Plant a rootstock just there. Just take care of it like a tree. It'll grow up a big whip. All right? Then in the fall, take a cyan cutting, go to your rootstock that's planted in the ground, cut it down a couple inches above ground level, cut a graft into it, graft your cyan wood onto the rootstock in the ground. Wrap it up with your grafting tape, etc. And then you get a very robust tree. Now you probably will get some suckering which means some stuff coming up out of the rootstock, get to prune that back, but that happens all the time with graft trees anyway. So there's several different ways that you could do it, and there's really no reason not to try all. 
You know, grow some seedlings. That doesn't hurt anything. Learn grafting as a skill. That's a good skill to have. Since you're going to learn grafting as a skill anyway, put some rootstock in the ground and graft onto it. That's another cool way to do things. And why not try taking some cuttings? It doesn't take that much effort. As long as you can look after them, keep them in quite a shady environment during the rooting phase, you should have some level of success. And then you'll learn all of those skills and preserve something that's been in your family probably a long time. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's a man here from the forum and from the UK. Um, over here in the UK this winter, we've had a very, uh, we've had a lot of landslides due to a uh, prolonged uh, period of wet weather. I was just wondering if uh, putting swales on um, slopes and saturating the soil um, could increase the risk of uh, landslides. Uh, keep up the good work. Uh, speak to you soon. Bye. Like most things in the permaculture world, the answer is dun-dun-dun. It depends. Uh, can you, with either swaling or terracing, bring the side of a mountain down? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And let me say at this point, whenever you're in a situation that you think might be a little dodgy at all in any way, um, it, it makes a lot of sense before you start doing major earthworks to bring in somebody with some engineering, specifically like civil-type engineering knowledge to run some calculations and sanity check what you're doing. I, I am not for the state requiring you to have a, pro a professional engineer, but I think on certain projects when you get beyond your knowledge and your scope, um, yeah, you should. Now, let's look at what a swale is supposed to do, though. When we plant swales, uh, when we put swales in, we should be establishing tree-based systems. And the more trees, the more prevention of erosion, the more we shore up uh, uh, the side of a hill or the side of a mountain, and the less likely we are to have a, a landslide. Once it's established, though, so it takes some time for this to work. So that's why, again, you gotta have some sanity check. What usually causes mudslides and landslides are eroded hillsides that don't have a lot of roots structure to hold things together, and then everything just gives way. Swales generally stop, not cause erosion. Okay, so they stop erosion. But, yes, if you took a really steep hill in really weak soil conditions, um, but yet soil that's quite able to hold back moisture and get quite muddy, high clay contents, um, but not high enough clay to be sticky, just high enough to, to, to be um, able to hold water uh, significantly. And you could do this with terrace as well. You could bring down the side of the hill. So it has a lot to do with how steep the soil, how steep the hill is, how deep the soil is what the soil type is, etc. Now, let me say what's not going to happen. You are not going to, let's say, in your backyard of an acre or so or less, go in, hand dig some swales that are a couple feet wide, build you some berms, put in some trees, do some good plantings, and create a landslide. Now, that's, that's, that's just not likely to happen. If you get a landslide in those conditions, that means you were going to get one anyway. And in a lot of places that you would see a swale maybe end up in a landslide, you might be in the same position. But again, I would say on anything major, on anything with significant slope, where you're going to be holding back significant amounts of water, 
that you should get some sanity check from someone to do some calculations uh, based on your average heaviest rainfall and your 100-year flood event. And if you're ever not sure, get some help. And after you get some help, if they say, well, it should handle it, make your sill bigger than you will need. Put an emergency sill and a secondary emergency sill and a stand-up pipe and put in multiple redundancies to prevent catastrophic failures. And you should be able to work in most environments then without a problem. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Scrappy Coco on the forums. Hey, I had a question for you. Um, some of my favorite podcasts by you are the financial ones, and uh, I was recently driving and I just had a question pop into my head that I thought I might call in. Um, I was watching one of uh, Stefan Molyneux's videos on YouTube and uh, after I heard you recommend him, and uh, you were right. It's a He's a really, really bright guy, and he was talking about kind of QE Infinity um, recently. This is a week ago, um, and he was saying something to the effect that um, the Federal Reserve is currently printing a lot of money and then sending it out to the banks and then paying the banks interest on all the money, the reserve currency or the reserve cash the banks hold, which in English would mean that they're paying the banks to not loan out money to give to people, right? And in doing so, they are keeping a lot of the inflation that we should be seeing or hyperinflation down. And um, I was wondering to myself, what what's the purpose of printing out all that money? I mean, we've been told that it's going to be printed so that they could stimulate the economy, right? But it's not being given out. So to me, I guess I just don't see any upsides to printing it. And the downside I see is that inevitably you're going to create inflation. So could you maybe fill me in on that point or just elaborate on it? Thanks, Jack. Thanks for everything you do. And by the way, I'd love to see Stefan Molling on your podcast and maybe talk about anarchy, minarchy, and what you guys think. Thanks. Well, this is uh, really, really complicated. I'm going to try to give a good seven, eight-minute answer here, and I'm going to tell you that I did a video series two years ago, I guess, or a year ago, I guess, whenever the hell this whole QE Infinity thing started. They called it QE3. And the video series was called Why QE3 Will Work. And I took a lot of flack for it. But as we look back now, we can see that not only did it work, it worked exactly the way that I said it would work, and they've done exactly the things that I said they would be doing. So if you want to get the college professor-level economics answer, except that instead of being a college professor bullshit, a professor bullshit answer, it's the real answer about what's really going on. It's two videos of about 10 minutes each and then a video of about 30 minutes. So I think overall is about 40 minutes on it. And I'll put link, a link to that, that video series so you can watch that today if you want get more than I'm going to tell you now. Well, let's take this first off and let's don't worry about economic theory. Let's not worry about velocity and expansion of the monetary supply. Let's not worry about inflation versus deflation and all of There's a million moving parts in there where people expect just because money's printed, there'll be inflation. And it doesn't work that way. And with a, a show like this, I can't go into exactly why that's the case today. It's not that simple. Um, but let's just take all that stuff for a minute and just put it on the shelf and go, okay, that's nice. Now let's troubleshoot the question. Why would the federal Reserve, who is not the government, by the way, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Why would the Federal Reserve give money to the banks 
so that the banks could then take it and get money back on it from the government in the form of interest. Okay, first we have to define the parties, all right? So if we're going to figure out what's wrong with a truck, well, what kind of truck is it? Is it gas or diesel, right? Uh, is it an old truck or a new truck? What kind of, right? You'd have to know these things to troubleshoot it. So let's start by identifying the three parties that are involved here. There's three major parties involved here. There are the banks, there are the, there is the Federal Reserve, and then there is the federal government, okay? And think of it in three baskets like that. Who are the banks? That one's easy. They're the banks. All the people that you go to to borrow money, to put money in and have it held in an account, write checks against your account, have savings accounts. You can set up an IRA. The banks, right? But the big banks, really. Morgan, Chase, right? Uh, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. They're the banks. We understand that. They're the banks. That was easy. The federal government. When it comes to money, who are we talking about when we talk about The federal government. We're talking about the Department of the Treasury. The Department of the Treasury is basically the people that are the, the government's internal bank. They issue bonds to, and that's where the interest comes from, by the way, that the banks are collecting. Uh, but they, they create bonds. They manage the currency. They say, or they don't manage the currency. They manage the government's money inside the government's basket. And they say, this is how much money we have, and this is how much money we're going to spend, and this is where our shortfalls are, and here we'll issue a bond, and the Chinese will buy it, or an old lady will buy it, or whatever, and that'll raise more money, and they do that. And that's their function. And they are a government agency made up of government employees. Treasury Department. All right. Then there is the Federal Reserve, which sounds like the government, but it's not the government. It is a private organization with government oversight, a quasi fascist group that actually controls the currency. How much money goes in, how much money comes out, collapse uh, the contraction and expansion of the M3 money supply. That is all the money that exists. Who are they? Well, they're a pro you just said they're a private organization. No. Who are they? Where do the people that make up the Federal Reserve come from? And the answer is They are the banks. The banks have board members on the Fed. And they have their own individual Feds. or uh, They have their own individual um, branches of the Fed, like the New York branch of the Fed, Dallas branch of the Fed, etc. Okay? So basically when you say the Federal Reserve is giving money to the banks, the question starts out with, well, Party A gave Party B money. But what you're actually saying is Party A gave Party A money. You get that. The banks are giving, when the Federal Reserve is quote unquote giving money to the banks, they're giving themselves money. So why would you give yourself money only to collect interest on it? Because it's in your best interest to do so. So the banks are acting in their own self-interest. That's, that's, that's the simple answer. Because they can have an excuse to do it, and they can enrich themselves. Now, the other side of this, though, is we have to comprehend what printing money means. What we usually, so this is troubleshooting to understand this all, right? So to understand why they're printing money, you have to say, wait a minute, how are they printing money? Now, one way that a bank can print money 
is that it simply, or, or one way that the, the Federal Reserve can print money is it can just stuff money into the banks. It can just say, here's some money. Uh, a direct printing. A direct quantitative easing. Uh, we're just going to issue new money. We're going to give it to the bank at a 0% interest loan. That means the bank has to pay it back, but they have no interest on it. So they can pretty much do whatever they want with it, increase the reserve capacity. That's not what they're doing. Another way that they can do it is they can say, oh, Bank of America, you're holding U.S. government bonds, a billion dollars worth. We want to create a new billion dollars, so we'll give you a billion dollars and take your bonds and we'll hold the bond. The way that prints money is that they don't actually take money out of a cash drawer. They actually create it with a journal entry. So they say deposit to Bank of America $1 billion, and then the Federal Reserve, which is also made up of a member of Bank of America, takes the billion-dollar bond. The government now owns the Federal Reserve the money. Federal Reserve gets the billion dollars. The U.S. gets the profit back through the Department of Treasury, which is the interest. So the Fed has enriched itself with a billion dollars. Bank of America can now take the billion dollars the Fed gave it and loan it out or go buy another bond with it or do whatever they want to with it. To Bank of America, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's, it, it doesn't, it's no big deal at all. They don't really care. Because if they wanted the bonds, they just can buy new bonds with it and it's a shell game. Alright? Now that the murky water starts to clear a little bit and you can see the sharks cruising around, you start to understand what's going on. But we still haven't defined how are the banks quote unquote printing money in this environment. They're not buying bonds. They're buying mortgaged back securities. They're buying, they're buying from the banks securities that the banks consider toxic, high risk. We don't want these on our books. They could go sour. And they're getting to the point now where the bad isn't even that bad anymore, right? Cause they bought up a bunch of the bad, but man, they got rid of a, a lot of stinky bad mortgage backed security. So, I'm Bank of America. I'm JP Morgan Chase. I'm whoever. And I have people on this magical little board called the Federal Reserve that will come bring me new clean money to take away my bad, icky, toxic money-backed stuff. Why would I want that? I'll take the clean money, please, and you can have the shitty money. Now, the Federal Reserve puts it on their balance sheet. If they collect it, they get to keep it. If they don't collect it, technically, they lose. But they don't really lose because they didn't tender anything for it. They expanded the monetary supply. You get it? Okay. Now, this strengthens the banks up. The banks now appear to have survived the storm, and it restores confidence in the United States economy, and they have all this money, and you expect them to loan it out. The thing is... There's so many people out there that can't get a loan now because they already lost a house. Who are they going to loan the money to? You can't go get a mortgage today if you just defaulted yesterday on your last mortgage. There's about 8 to 9 million people in our population that were fair game for making loans to in 2008 that are still not going to get a loan today. So the number of people qualifying for a loan is down. The number of people buying houses is generally down, even though it's starting to recover at this point. So there's less people to loan to, and the banks have new money. 
The icky loans are gone. They've kept their best loans on the books. And what are they going to do with this money? Are they going to sit there and look at it? They're going to loan it to somebody. So who are they going to turn to? Who's the third party here? Department of Treasury. So they turn to the Department of Treasury and they say we have these big cash reserves now and they buy bonds. And that inflates the monetary supply at the top. And all they're doing is holding the money and, and collecting some interest. So that's it. That's why they would do it because it's in their own self-interest to do it. They get free money that's equivalent to the value of the bad money that they have, the risky money, and they get the risk to go away, and they turn around and give it to the government who needs to turn over the debt badly. So the Fed is, in effect, printing money through the purchase of risky mortgage-backed securities that the banks were holding. So the risk is now transferred from the bank to the Fed, who has no real risk because they always could just create more money to cover their own problems. The government gets to turn over the treasury debt because there's billions flowing in from the banks. The Fed gets to say, we're not really printing money. We're just buying an asset on behalf of the American people. And we all lose. Because they're enriching themselves. So, where's the inflation? I'm at 11 minutes. The inflation is there, but it's held in check because the loans aren't being made. And the loans aren't being made because the people that are worthy of a loan, that are worthy of the risk of a loan, are not there with which to make the loans. So the velocity of the money is held back. If you want to know more, tune into it. But just next time you end up with a problem like this, try using the method I just taught you. Start by defining who, what, and where is going on in the situation. And, and I think a lot of times you'll figure these things out for yourself. They're not that complicated. It's just that we make assumptions that we've been trained to make that are untrue. The Federal Reserve is the government. That's the first incorrect assumption. But the next incorrect assumption is that the Federal Reserve is different than the banks. The Federal Reserve is just a bunch of people that are the banks. It's like asking, why would a club made up of a bunch of auto dealership owners. So you have Auto Dealership Owners Club of Dallas. If that club had unlimited assets, why would it turn around and go buy all of the shitty cars on the lots that aren't selling and get them off the books and infuse capital into the hands of all of the dealerships when the club is made up of the people that own the dealerships? Now, that can't happen with cars, because where would they get the money? But what if you had an auto dealers club of Dallas, and they had a money printing machine that they could buy their shitty cars with and put them inside their club and sell them off at anything they can get for them later and make room on the lot and infuse money into the hands of the dealerships to bring in new inventory? Why would they do it? Well, because it's in their best interest to do so, And because, well, wouldn't that be nice if we could all do things like that? So there's your answer. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Nick from Illinois. Um, as I'm looking in my backyard this this uh, winter that never ends and thinking about getting some designs into my backyard, 
I also start to get the the flavor for hitting some golf balls this year. So I thought I'd throw out a question that I think may be interesting and, and really stretch your, your uh, understanding of permaculture design. I was wondering how permaculture could relate to the design of golf courses. Um, I'm going to ask you if it's possible, and I know you're going to say uh, yes, uh, but I thought I'd throw that out there. It might be a real interesting large-scale way with all the different monocultures going on, but uh, it's a pretty interesting idea to roll into a tee box and pick an apple tree and they're heading down the fairway or in the rough uh, grabbing some grapes or something else. Uh, but just thought I'd throw that out there, see what you had to say. I thought it would be an interesting discussion. Thanks so much, and uh, keep up the great work. Really appreciate you out here. Have a great day. Well, could I design a golf course and have it be uh, permaculture, at least wrapped in permaculture? Uh, the answer is yes. Would would it fly in the modern world of golf? Probably not. I, I have to say I'd be much more excited about doing a permaculture golf course for a disc golf, frisbee golf type golf uh, situation than golf as we think of it. Um, here's why golf courses by their very nature, uh, people want them tidy and neat and they don't want things like animals running around on them and pooping in the middle of the pretty green grass. And I guess you could do it without animals, but boy, it's tough on that scale. Um, but even the fruit trees dropping apples and pears and if you're in the South and far enough citrus and stuff like that, oh, it's, it's a, it's a problem. And I just think there'd be a lot of bitching. There'd be a lot of bitching. Now, could I do it? Yeah. And how I would do it is you'd have your main greens. You'd have to keep a dominant monoculture grass, uh, especially like your putting greens and things like that. Uh, your water features could end up being awesome aquacultured water gardens. Uh, so that's no problem at all. Your sand traps would just be sand traps. Um, definitely, again, yeah, your green around your, your golf holes and all that Putting green stuff would have to be manicured, maintained. You'd have to use an organic fertilizer because you'd have to fertilize that type of a situation. That short, that green, that perfect. Or you'd have to use on your putting greens like an artificial turf, which I don't think would fly with most golfers that are serious. Um, your rough could basically be pasture. Uh, a lot of rough in golf courses is traditionally been clovers and things like that. So, you know, wildflowers, clovers, herbs, uh, mixed grasses, that would be fine. Um, so that'd be fine. And then all of your, your woods could then be orchards. And you could do it, but I, I just don't think it would fly. I think you would have to build it and then attract a different type of golfer to it. I think the average person that plays golf has come to expect a manicured set of greens and I don't know that I'd waste my time trying to do something like that. There's so many places where people want abundance that I'm not going to try to cram abundance into a place where uh, people don't want it. Now, if you had something like a whole neighborhood that got together and said, we actually life golf, like golf and we want to build a golf course and we want to make it community orchards and community permaculture, at the same time, well, then it'd be easy. It's not actually a difficult design at all. It's actually really easy because you do need holes, right? And you do need open spaces. And once you design the fairways and the putting greens, everything that's left 
is what you have to work with. And now it gets easy. And now we can start thinking about things like how we can put swales in. And instead of doing tree swales, we could actually do pastured swales. And we could make them hazards for the golfers, right? Place you could get, instead of getting stuck in a bunker, you get stuck in a swale. Right? We could, we could do this. You'd have to put in crossings on your sills so that people could get their golf courts across them and, and what have you. And maybe some solar panels on your golf carts to, to make it real permaculture and protect polar bears or whatever. But yeah, we, I could do it. I, I don't even see the design as being difficult at all. From a physical design, ecological design, easy. It would be the social design components that would be extremely difficult, and I don't know that it's where I'd spend my time. Interesting question, though. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Bob Colley from Eastern Pennsylvania. I'm in the Lehigh Valley in Zone 6, and I have a question about some of my plants. We're coming to the growing season, and my garden does very good, but I have problems with three of my plants blackberries, strawberries, and cucumbers. I have a very clay soil. I have my garden established for four-ish years with the mix of clay and compost, so I, I have pretty good soil. My plants do great, all, all of them, the cucumbers, the strawberries, and the blackberries. The plants grow, 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 but they don't fruit. I think I'm missing something, maybe something in the soil, maybe something I'm not doing for them. Um, and I'm looking for your help. I would like to get strawberries, blackberries, and cucumbers and not just good, strong, sturdy plants um, growing. If you have any insight on this, I would certainly appreciate it. Um, that's it. Have a great day. Well, the real answer is I have no idea because there are so many things that could be at play here. Um, that it's impossible for me, based on the information you've given me, to tell you exactly what's wrong. And this would be one of those things where you really need to have a two-way conversation and, and do some things. Here's some suggestions, though. It is highly probable that your soil is alkaline, and all three of those plants prefer acidic soil down in the range of, like, you can be 7 and neutral and okay, but, like, 6 to 6.5 is bang on for those. And they will generally produce a lot better at 6 to 6.5 than something like 7.2. Do a soil pH test. And if you do, in fact, have um, alkaline soil, especially a 7.2, 7.4 range, use some organic style uh, soil amendment to bring the pH of the soil into the 6 to 6, 5 range in the area around the plants that you're doing. Continue your mulching and composting, but do a little bit of adjustment. Here's why a lot of times the nutrients these plants need to set fruit are there, but if their soil is alkaline, they can't get them. It's almost like, imagine this, imagine that you were really hot and tired. You were really, really thirsty, and you really wanted an ice-cold beer. And right in front of you were these big silver bottles of beer. They said beer on them. And you could see them sweating, and you could feel how cold they were with your fingers, and you knew the beer was in there. But they weren't glass bottles you could bust the top of. They're like hardcore metal containers, right? And uh, a special lid and you need to get the lid off to get the beer out. You can smash it on rocks. You can beat on it. You can kick it. It's indestructible. All you'll do is pressurize the beer, and if you did get it open, it'll 
You're not going to get any beer. You need a special opener. And I don't give you the opener. In some situations where pH is just wrong in soil, that's what it's like. Your plant can see and feel and knows that beer bottle's there, but they can't get into it. They don't have the opener. Suggesting pH might be a part of your problem. You might want to look into the work that Dr. Elaine Ingram is doing and soil, soil activity and the stuff she teaches about with actually getting a microscope and looking at the organisms in your soil. Because certain organisms tell you that even though you think everything's good, you have anaerobic action going on and you need to make some amendments and compost teas and et cetera to balance that out. Maybe, but I don't think that's the case. I'm thinking it's most likely a pH issue or a nutrient deficiency issue. And it's either they can't get the nutrients they need to set fruit because they have the wrong pH or the nutrient's not there. And I tried to find a common nutrient that, if deficient, would affect blackberry, cucumber, and strawberry, all with not setting fruit. And in the limited time I have this week to research it for you, I couldn't find it. So I bet there's some. Uh, phosphorus and potassium would be at the, the NPK spectrum, top of my list of places I think that would be. There's another option. Are you getting enough pollination? Cucumbers, blackberry, and um, your strawberries all require pollinators. So are you getting enough pollination? I mean, if everything else is producing good, what else is producing? Are they things with perfect flowers that don't really need pollinators? Do you have any other cucurbits that are producing well? Like if you told me I got pumpkins producing well and cucumbers not, then I would be a little, that would be like, what's going on there? So those are my things I would check if I were you. But I would start with soil pH. And if you come up with a soil pH, it's like 7, 6, there's your, there's your issue. I don't think it's going to be that high though. I don't think your plants would be strong and healthy, not your cucumbers, if you had a 7, 6, 7, 8 uh, soil. Um, you know, I, I really don't. Blackberry and strawberry, those things can live in the shittiest soil and grow like mad, but they don't produce well unless they get optimum soil. So, um, and you're getting no fruit. That's the other thing. So that's the place I would start. That's the place I would start. Um, if you know somebody around you that has good production in these plants, you might want to take a test of their soil and a test of your soil, and see what's different. You might even want to take two samples, label them so you don't forget, send them off to like the Ag Extension office, and get a soil sample report back on both of them. And and even if they tell you everything's good, you find where things, like one of these things is not like the other, one of these things ain't quite the same. Remember that from when you were a kid, right? That is probably going to be the big indicator for you. Um, wish I could give you a definitive answer, but I can't. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Brent in Prince Edward Island. Sea kale. What can you tell me about it? And I was uh, looking at your uh, Facebook page, and a John uh, Kitsteiner uh, posted about it uh, in, in permaculture. And I was wondering uh, if it's something that would be good for uh, a Prince Edward Island climate, uh, Canadian Zone 5B. Thanks. Um, well, I, there's not a lot to, to say here other than, uh, yes, it would do well in your area. Uh, the name of the, uh, uh of, of sea kale in Latin 
is Cranberry Maritima. Maritima is in maritime, right? So uh, you're in a maritime province of Canada, right? You, you you're on the ocean, and sea kale uh, is called sea kale because it grows along the coasts, wild in the the coasts of Europe and the North Atlantic. Um, it's it's actually tailor made for your climate. Um, if you like kale, cabbage tasting stuff, it should have already been planted. Um, I would go for it. I'd give it a shot. And I, I can't really say much more than that. If you don't like kale and cabbage, well, then you probably won't really enjoy sea kale. Um, the really cool part uh, about sea kale, though, is that it is a perennial. It comes back year after year after year after year. It's one of the true few real perennial vegetables, right? It's a it's a long-lived perennial vegetable and it is perfect for your climate. And I I don't really know what else I can tell you other than plant it and if you like kale and cabbage taste and stuff, uh let us know how it works out. Do mulch the hell out of it in your winters. I I would I would suggest that. Uh it likes loose, well-drained, friable Sandyish soils, as you might imagine, which you probably have an abundance of, and you don't have to worry about too much. So that's that's my thoughts on sea kale. Let's take another call. What is the difference between building topsoil and making compost? Hey, Jack, this is James in New Jersey. On some of your shows, you talk about how you're building topsoil and, and making compost. But what exactly is the difference? I tried Googling it, but my Google foo must not be strong enough. Thanks in advance. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. The easiest thing to tell you would be that compost would be a component in good topsoil. Compost, as we, we, we make it in a compost pile or through verma composting or uh, using chickens to make compost, is produced in quantity and then spread out and used as a component in building up the humic and organic layers uh, within topsoil. Topsoil is all the good stuff at the top layer on the ground. It's your two to eight inches, and if you're blessed, you might have more. It's the part of, it's it, topsoil is dirt. Compost is just broke down organic matter. Topsoil has mineral content in it, silica content. Topsoil is made up not just of organic matter, but silt, sand, and clay. So the more organic matter you have in your topsoil, the better in general, assuming it's good stuff too as well. So, But there is a lot of non-organic matter in topsoil. There, again, silt, clay, and sand. And that's really it. So when you're building, when you're making compost, you're combining large amounts of organic matter and putting it through a process to break down and become this black, loamy humus that you're going to mix in or put on top of your topsoil. And even though you don't mix it in, thousands of little critters mix it in, and it starts to create a soil structure. If you go into a forest, 
The forest does its own composting, and then the compost gets incorporated into the soil. Huge amount of leaf litter forms. You start pulling that leaf litter back, and at the very point that the leaves meet the soil, you'll find this rich, dark, almost black, fluffy stuff that's natural compost. And as you keep going, you get a crumb structure in a good soil. And now you're down into the top soil. If you keep going, eventually you'll get into a place where there's a clear layer and there's a difference in the soil, and you go into a subsoil. And the subsoil is very deficient in organic matter. It's not, it's not got a lot of oxygen going in it. It's just a mineral base. And then you can go down from there and eventually end up into Mother Earth bedrock. So when you're building topsoil in an environment, that's where you're putting out compost, you're You're grazing animals. You're chopping and dropping. You're you're accelerating the natural cycle that formed the co the topsoil in the first place. It, the difference is kind of like a way to think about it would be: what's the difference between gravel and concrete? Gravel is one of the ingredients in concrete. You got cement, you got sand, you got gravel. You mix them together, you get concrete. Right, so topsoil can use compost as one of its ingredients to increase its humic level and its organic matter level. So that's it. Again, the big difference in building one versus the other is composting generally is more of a process involving all organic matter, and it's being done in an area, a compost heap or something like that, and then it's used as a soil amendment or a fertilizer. Or to give life to a dead lawn with a compost tea or something like that. Where topsoil development is about putting large amounts of organic matter down. It's about, and no matter how it gets there, whether it's going out and, and picking up bags of leaves on corners that neighbors bag up for you. Or whether it is letting your grass grow and then cutting it with a mulching mower and not bagging it up and taking it away. And leaving it to go to the ground Or it's about letting the grass grow really tall and grazing it with birds or, or, or ruminants, putting them through it, letting them take it down, letting them transport it into manure. These are accelerated means by which we can grow topsoil. And we can't grow topsoil as fast as we can make compost. We can't. But we can't make compost at a quantity to cover you know the broad acre, so to speak. I mean, if you start doing calculations, let me just kind of break it down for you in a way where you can kind of understand where the limitations of compost fall off at. So I have three acres, for instance, and I want to build the soil on the entire three acres. And I just don't want to increase the depth of the topsoil, but the soil is there. I want to make it healthier. I want to improve it. Well, all of the things I talked about, like bringing in large amounts of organic matter, chopping and dropping, grazing, all of those things can do that. And you, you can think about the, the size of a three-acre property and, you know, even some areas where you might crop it and then just chop the crops to the ground. And you can get your head around it. This can be done. The, the entire ecosystem can be improved on, on, on something that size. Well, what if I said, you know what, the hell with it. I just want to put two inches of compost down, just two inches deep. And, yeah, man, that would, ugh, that would blow this place up, that much compost, two inches deep. All the way around it, assuming I stopped the erosion I have in the west pasture so I didn't just waste it. Um, but do you want to know roughly how much compost I would need to be able to do that? 
about 630 cubic yards. It's actually a little more, but it's rounded off. 630 cubic yards. Um, you know those little bags of compost that you buy in the store? They're generally about three cubic feet to a bag. I would need about 56 to 5,700 bags of that. I need 17,000 plus cubic feet to do two inches on three acres. Um, running some other numbers. There's a place down the road here that sells compost for $35 a yard. Right, So if I wanted to buy, I said, I don't care. I'm Daddy Warbucks. I want to buy my 632 feet of compost. Uh, I would need $22,000 to buy that much compost. I'm sure I could get a discount. So say me I get it for twenty grand, $20,000 worth of compost just for three acres. And when you start to look at it that way, you start to realize, you know what? It's just not feasible to do it from a standpoint of pure composting. Now, Jeff Lawton has this new method of composting with chickens and mobile and what have you. And he says that because they're, they're using about 36 birds and they're getting a lot, a lot of vegetable matter from supermarkets throwing away, and they have a very big operation, and they're growing a lot of vegetables, and they have a lot of vegetable waste, and the chickens are processing them all, he's producing um, roughly about six yards a week is what he's ending up with once he gets it going. That means in a hundred weeks or two years, you could roughly put two inches on three acres. But I'd say at that point, the way you're running the birds and using materials and all, you're, you're, you're composting in order to build soil, if you want to think about it that way. But even with a, a massive output system like he's built, which is pretty simple, it would still take two years to do that. Whereas we could do a lot on those three acres in a year with grazing animals and things like that. So topsoil building is about the overall health of the ecosystem, and composting is one ingredient in that process. And with that, I'm done this week, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Still fighting a little bit of hoarseness, but I think my voice is a lot better. And I've got a weekend off now. I've got to get ready for this big event next week. I look forward to seeing you, many of you guys here at this planning workshop. It is going to be awesome. Those of you that are coming, let's have fun. Uh, but please, if you're listening to me and you're going to be here next week, please keep my gates closed. That's the biggest thing that I'll ask. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Revolution is you.